from the start. David, welcome to the chaos. How are you? Steven, uh, hopefully you guys can hear me at this point. This is such a relief. You sound you sound beautiful, David. This is this wow. is wonderful. What a what a what a That's, time to be alive. Uh, it's, uh, it's all, it's all lead, easy leading with the, leading with the right foot, anyways. So <laughs> maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your uh, the Cold War channel. Yeah. So my name's David. I'm the host of a YouTube channel called The Cold War. Um, the basic the, the basic mission statement is to do a, a recount and a telling the story of the the Cold War, which is basically the period from the end of the Second World War, sometimes a little after, sometimes a little before, it depends who you talk to, uh, up until 1989 or 1991, or there's a quite a lot of debate that goes on in terms of how long the Cold War actually lasted. Um, lots of people argue that it's still going it's on still today. Going on. <laughs> that, that's, that's a whole other podcast. I'm happy to come back on and have that argument sometime some other time. Um, but uh, that's so we every Saturday we release a new video on a new topic, um, basically looking at um, some really big episodes, some really big incidents that happened, um, some cultural aspects from either life in the Soviet Union or cultural impacts in the United States. Um, and then other, other weeks we do pick sort of smaller topics and try to explore and dig into things that hopefully, hopefully we can do a little bit of education and teach people with something that uh, uh, dispel a couple of myths, something that may not might not have known about that period from 1945 to to 1991. So, it's a fascinating period. It's a bit of a thorn in my backside because I'm somebody who's very skeptical of conspiracy theories and people trying to get away with things, and I reject a lot of them out of hand. And then people will bring up the CIA and all the nonsense they've tried to get away with, and I have to hold my hands up and say, "Yeah, you you've got me there." Uh, the really, the really, uh, the really did try some quite out there zany stuff, and chief amongst them were, you know, attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro. So, what can you tell me about that period of time in terms of the political climate and why, why they thought this was a, you know, potentially a, a good strategy? Um, so, the the. A bit of groundwork. I mean, um, Cuban Revolution happens in 1959. Fidel Castro overthrows um, Fulgencio Batista, the U.S.-backed dictator that had been ruling Cuba for quite a number of years. Um, and the U.S., which had had massive, massive business and political interests um, in Cuba since the, at least the, since at least the Spanish-American War um, at the turn of the century, um, the U.S. took that rather personally. Um, there was a lot of and that's putting it mildly. Um, there was a lot of senior, very influential American politicians and businessmen that lost an awful lot of money um, as the, the when the Cuban Revolution happened. There was like scores of nationalization of the sugar industry, um, of shipping telephones, uh, you name it. Across Cuba, it was basically this slow process of nationalization and throwing the U.S. out of Cuba. Um, and when all of this started, uh, Washington basically took a very took this very personally. Um, the, the Dulles brothers, um, Alan and uh, John Foster Dulles, uh, who were head of State Department and head of CIA, um, were, who had business interests through United Fruit and whatnot, um, and lots of their their buddies um, and those around them took it took a very great interest in hopefully being able to remove Castro, who they saw as being an unfriendly uh, an unfriendly item uh, to the uh, the U.S. Um, and wanted to remove him from power. Um, friendly and, item. I like that. I'm I'm taking that, David. I'm going to use that in my day tomorrow at some point. The uh, the, the first one. The first one's free, Stephen. So, so. <laughs> um, 
So what, what ended up happening is even under the Eisenhower administration, so before Kennedy took, uh, before Kennedy won the election um, and took power, um, the Eisenhower administration was already working on plans to see what they could do to, if not remove Castro, um, certainly discredit him um, in the minds of Cubans so that the Americans could get back in. And this very much stems from this idea that the CIA was, and they, this is the CIA is the, the group that they turned to because the CIA had a, a, a decade long history at this point of international regime change. Um, regime change is, a, I think that's more of a, a common word that we use in the, the here and now, as opposed to uh, in the 50s. Um, but 1949, as early as 1948, 1949, the CIA in its very earliest form after it was created um, was attempting to overthrow government in Albania um, to no success. Um, they had um, success working with the Brits to overthrow um, uh, the Iranian, uh, democratically elected Iranian President Mossadegh um, in Iran. Um, 1954, uh, the uh, Guatemalan, um, there was a Guatemalan coup that was backed by the CIA. And it's really the Guatemalan coup that, uh, that sort of sparks the CIA's hubris, I would say, um, in terms of thinking that it could basically do whatever it wanted, especially in its own backyard. This wasn't, this wasn't Vietnam where they'd helped to install No Dinh Diem. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't Iran. This was, this was 90, 90 miles off the coast of Key West. Like this is really is like literally their backyard. Um, and it sparked all these different ideas that resulted in claims of, claims from the Cubans, mind you, but claims of uh, over 600 different assassination attempts on the life of Fidel Castro. Um, over his life. Not all of those are by the CIA, naturally. There was a lot of people who may have wanted Castro dead, um, but the CIA certainly had their hand in more than a few of those. So there's, your, there's a bit of background anyways. Yeah, that's great. And there's, there's lots that I want to unpick from there. But you said something interesting there, this idea of regime change and how, you know, Western powers would often try and, you know, enforce and enforce these kind of things. But in a sort of post-Iraq climate now is, is the usa and the cia lost all appetite for that kind of things uh, certainly in such a direct way sorry Steve, i'm having sound problems on my side now there's the Can you hear me? Not, not that i want to get into this is it's completely on my side there's uh the condo block that i live in hasn't had any yard maintenance in a month and they're deciding to use the leaf blower today so uh, <laughs> my apologies this is uh, because you started, again. this is because you've started talking crap about the cia and they've just I've, it must be, they're, they're, they're uh, listening. They're everywhere. So. In all fairness, I, I, I imagine it must be irritating for you being there, but we, we can't really hear it so much, so it's not ruining the audio. Um, well, so good. I'm, can, I'm, I'm glad that you're not able to hear it. Um, it's, if you can persevere, we'd be very absolutely. grateful. Absolutely. If you could just ask the question again, I'll do my best to, uh, to, to press on through. It seems to be Certainly. the afternoon of this. <laughs> um, so I think I asked, uh, in terms of regime change, in a, in a sort of post-Iraq climate does the cia in america have very little appetite for that kind of thing going forward now um i i will probably beg ignorance on the the current state of that um i i consider myself to be a historian i, I like to work with sort of the, the documents and the things that there's there's proof of do i think that the cia involves themselves in things in regime change to these days I think that they're they're a part of that. They're part of America's security apparatus. They're part, like you know, in terms of promoting their own interests. Um, but I, what they're doing now, I don't want to, for fear that they might show up at my door or something. Let's. Uh, um, I would I would 
not feel comfortable supposing to comfortably definitively stating that yes they're absolutely out there causing havoc across the uh, the world and you know replacing but, governments um, but there's really certainly historically the speaking there's a long long history um to indicate that why would anything be different now so yeah Okay, I mean, that really would ruin the show tonight. We've had audio problems, video problems, and if you was to be assassinated live on feed, I think that would, think that, would ruin, that would ruin my day, David. Think of the ratings, though. <laughs> this is true. Okay, I mean, tell me a little bit about the Cold War period in, in terms of why it fascinates you so much. Of all the periods of time people like to focus on historically, why, why is this one uh, so important to you? Cold War, I, I was born in the late 70s. Um, I grew up through the 80s i mean that's the that that's the period the, the what we now can refer to as the late cold war um because we know that it ended in 1989 1991 whatever you want to call that um but at the time like you know as a kid like it was you know you wake up every morning knowing that the alarms could go like you know you could get the i mean four minute warning if you were in the uh if you were in the uk or like you know 15 minute warning if you were in north america that the cold war could spark off at any time that was just that was the environment and that was the, the life that everybody lived and it was that you automatically lived under and there wasn't going to be a change to that it wasn't i compare it to something like the second world war which has this sort of this fixed notion even during the second world war people knew that there was going to be an end to it in the 80s the cold war seemed this indefinite it was never going to end and that yeah. looking back on it that fascinates me um I played a lot of video games. I read Tom Clancy books and a lot of those things you use the Cold War as a like a historical backdrop. And you sort of absorb all that into your becomes a part of part of who you are and what you're interested in. That sort of has carried forward and why part of the reason that we do the channel. Um I've coming back to Cuba, I've I've been to to Cuba several I'm a Canadian. Um we don't have travel restrictions in terms of you know direct flights. I can it's cheaper for me to go to Cuba for a week than it is for me to fly to London. Um, believe it or not, that's just the way that these things Probably work. Probably cheaper for me to fly to Cuba than get the train to London from where <laughs> I am. And that's and, not necessarily a joke. And it'll probably be on time, no less. So Yes, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, so I've been to Cuba a few times. I've been, to, I've been to Santiago de Cuba, which is where Fidel is buried. Um, I did a tour of the city and without even knowing it, we ended up at a cemetery and you're walking through and following the tour and there's Fidel's grave right there. Um, so it's, it's all these little things in my life that sort of seem to come back around and sort of indicate that, yeah, this is, there's this recurring theme in my life that I find cold war places find me. I find colder places. I don't know exactly how that, uh, that works out. Um, it's also in my opinion, it's a rather underserviced period of history. Um, in terms of education and knowledge that's out there. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of um, half-truths that are out there. A lot of that has to do with access to sources because so much of that is classified um, or redacted to such a degree that it really is hard to know what the truth is. Um, like yourself, I'm not one that's prone to conspiracy, um, but I can, I can understand why it can happen because you do a, uh, a FOIA act like request and you get your freedom of information papers and half of it has been marked out and it's, you can't read it and your brain starts to fill in gaps and you don't know what your, your brain is just filling in gaps with maybe what the truth is or maybe what you want the truth to be. And it's, it's fascinating to sort of delve into this and sort of start picking different threads and different pieces from history and sort of threading it all together. Um, so it really is like this, this amazing period of history to me. So, um, yeah. 
the fact oh, yeah. that I, the fact that I was there at the end, like you know, sort of like you know, you watch that on television as if the Berlin Wall happened, like you know, is, is happening. You watch the the Soviet flag being lowered over the Kremlin for the last time, and the Russian flag being raised in its place. Um, it just seems like that that was the eleven o'clock news at the time. But in retrospect, it's like wow, like we're, we're really watching history sort of unfold. So, when was the fall of the Berlin Wall? Was it eighty nine? Uh, yeah, November 10th or November 11th, 1989. So. I remember that. I have an early memory of, I was born in 84, but I, I have a, a memory of like a children's show in the UK. And uh, this might be a false memory. I'll have to look this up later. But they were actually giving away pieces of the Berlin Wall as prizes. Yeah. That seems yeah. like something far too crazy to have just imagined myself. Uh, no, I mean, that's... I completely believe that there were hundreds and I mean, hundreds of tons of concrete that the wall was made of the entire city of what was West Berlin, not just the dividing part in the middle, but like, obviously like all the way around um, was concrete, this like massively thick concrete wall. Um, and leave it, leave it to capitalism that within, I would say within hours probably of the wall starting to come down, there were probably people starting to collect it um, and reselling it. Um, and some, some pieces are, some people, there's lots of people have pieces all over the world and some, some people have more authentic pieces than others. That's all I can say to that. So I myself have never collected a piece of the Berlin wall. Um, maybe I'm not trusting enough, uh, to put my, my, they're, they can be surprisingly expensive. Um, and I'm just not trusting enough to put down a few hundred pounds to, uh, to get a piece of the Berlin wall that may or may not be authentic. So. Yeah, it's always a risk. It's always a risk. Okay, you said something interesting there. I mean, you said that, you know the, this living in this um, climate of the looming four-minute warning and how how real the threat of of nukes were at that time. And nukes are a sort of part of the current cultural zeitgeist again with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which chronicles yeah. obviously the Trinity test and the Hiroshima bombing. Which, unless I've missed something dramatically, was the last time a nuke was actually detonated and i often wonder given you know the the proliferation of nuclear weapons how many there are almost feels like a sort of chekhov's gun situation where you feel it's not a matter of if but when even um, just by accident uh i mean do you do you think um i mean ha tensions rise all the time you know we currently parts of the world are, are at war right now nuclear superpowers are you know aggressive saber rattlers etc how, how likely do you think it'll be that we will see the detonation of a nuke uh in like foreseeable future just a nice cheery cheery question for you to run out there oh that's yeah no that's um yeah so uh, if i i should put a drink i should put something a little stiffer in this than just a cup of tea but uh um i it is absolutely no no small miracle um, that we are all standing here now in 2023, and there has never been a a nuclear a nuclear accident that has resulted in an actual detonation. I mean, we've had Fukushima Daiichi, we've had Chernobyl. Obviously, is the big one. There's there's numerous other um, nuclear disasters that have happened around the world. Um, those are really the, sort of the, the big ones. I mean, I think Sellafield, um, Three Mile Island. There's there's several around the world that on this sliding scale. Um, but in, it's, a, it's a very small miracle. Um, there's numerous incidents uh, that happened in the US. Certainly that we, there's 36 what's called broken arrows um, that happened in the US where the, there was a, 
I can't think of the exact wording that the Department of Defense uses, but it's the uh, the unscheduled release of a nuclear weapon. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and one of, the, one of the more one of the more famous ones, and sort of the one that always springs to mind if I get this kind of question, was uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, the I can't remember what type of um, bomb it was. I think it was a four megaton uh, bomb that was jettisoned from a crashing B-52 that had had an air-to-air refueling accident. Um, and there's four safety, there were four safety solenoids um, that were like basically live live warhead, sealed pit, nuclear weapon. Um, it was the, the first three safety features failed. Um, and it was a 50 cent solenoid valve um, that prevented uh, basically like a huge chunk of North Carolina from being disintegrated. Um, there's been several other nuclear incidents that have happened that are well known. Um, there was a release off the coast of Spain near Palomares um, that, that that ground is still contaminated to this day. Um, it's not a nuclear detonation, but there's plutonium dust and whatnot that gets scattered. Um, Tybee Island um, in Georgia, there's several incidents like this. Um, and it really is just a small miracle. And then that's only the training accidents. Um, then you move to what happens, like if there's somebody, one side misunderstands what's happening on the other side. Um, and somebody decides that, yeah, now's, now's the time. Um, when I say four minute warning and 15 minute warnings, um, for those who may not be aware of this, um, the four minute warning, that's how long it would take for an, ICE, for an ICBM launch from the Soviet Union to obliterate the United Kingdom was four minutes. Four minutes from launch to, uh, to detonation. 15 minutes um, from the USSR to the east coast of the United States. 15 and four minute warnings, but that's, that's what you would get. Reaction time on that is not very high. There's not a lot of time to sit and deliberate um, how long like each side is gonna be able to respond. If the idea is that your side, your team A, and I'm not gonna pick sides here, but if your team A and you see that team B is launched, you only have a few minutes to decide whether you're going to launch as a counter-strike um, and a lot of this has been computerized as we've just seen with the previous host computers mess up. I was going to use a stronger word there, but computers do, do mess up. Uh, there was an incident in 1983, cut me off at any point if I'm rambling, but this is, this is both illuminating and terrifying. So I'll, I'll let you know when I'm ready to cry. Perfect. Um, 1983, there was an incident where a Soviet um, early warning system detected a full, uh, as you know, detected a partial launch um, and from the United States. Um, and the commander in control, uh, Stanislav Petrov is his name. He's also been dubbed the man who saved the world. Um, Stanislav Petrov uh, made the decision that there was only 200 missiles showing that being launched, which didn't make any sense because there were thousands of missiles. If the U.S. was going to launch a, a strike, why would they only start with 200? So he refused to, to even call it in. He refused to authorize counter-strike. Turns out it was a computer glitch. It was, I think that, I think that's the one it was reading the, the, the radar system was reading the sun rising above the horizon as a, as a launch. Um, there was an incident. There was an incident in the state. At least a couple of incidents in the states. One of them was somebody loaded a training tape on, like a onto a uh, a live computer, sim like so. It was a training, like a simulation tape, um, 
So suddenly, like out of nowhere, it looked like a full-scale launch from the USSR against the US. Um, and it was only somebody actually using their using their, their brains and like sort of critical thinking decided like, no, this doesn't make sense. Discovered it was a training tape. There was a flock of birds at one point. Um, it literally, it is an absolute miracle that we are still standing here right now without an, without some sort of an accidental detonation or launch. The more, I'm a big proponent of proliferate, like basically of non-proliferation. I shouldn't say I'm, I'm a big proponent of proliferation. <laughs> Nukes for everyone. You have a nuke. Yeah, exactly. You have a nuke, yeah. The, the only good country with, you know, it's a, the only way to stop a bad country with a nuke is a good person with a nuke. <laughs> we'll take that to its logical conclusion. Um, I'm a big, big fan and a big proponent of proliferation. The fewer countries and the fewer groups that have access to nuclear weapons with strong safeguards in place, um, the less likely there is that there's going to be some sort of an accident, some sort of intent, whatever that happens to be. The more nukes that there are and the more groups that have them, more, the more likely that that chance increases. To answer your original question, now that I've been rambling for a few minutes, uh, statistically speaking, it will happen because that's how the law of averages works. Yeah, that, that's where I am with it. And that's terrifying. And this is this is one of those rare situations where I've actually been quite annoyed how knowledgeable the guest is, because it's just not made me feel any better, David. But uh, yeah, I mean, this idea of mutually assured destruction is one that we seem to lean on a lot. This idea that we won't nuke you because you'll only nuke us. And it's we basically we're basically pressing the button ourselves to be nuked if we nuke you. But I mean, a, a while back, I don't know if you're familiar with the American neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris. He wrote a uh, a blog post about this, about nuclear first strikes. And he, he sort of it was, a, you know, it was um a hypothetical situation, but he envisaged a situation where perhaps an Islamist regime might acquire nuclear weapons. And to somebody like them, who would get dewy-eyed with the uh, the promise of paradise, I think how he put it, the idea of mutually assured destruction wouldn't mean anything to them. As a matter of fact, they'd probably invite it. Um, is that is that something that you've thought about? Something you've worried about in terms of it, it really depends on the ideology behind the people that have the nuclear weapons. It does. So much of nuclear nuclear strategic thinking um, that's that's been developed since I mean since Trinity, um, and certainly has advanced immensely as the power of the weapons has increased and as there's this nuclear stockpiles increased. Um, so much of the base assumptions is that the the groups using the groups in control were rational thinkers, um, and that that everything is predicated on the idea of of a, of rationality in terms of decision making, um, and I think Sam Harris is is bang on. As soon as, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick on Islamists because it could be, it could be, it could be religion, it could be chemical imbalance. I mean, there's there's a, a wide variety of different um, things that that could present. Um, but as soon as rationality is taken out of the decision making process, um, nuclear weapons are not a rational weapon. Like that's just at their fundamental core, they are a it's it's a dis, they are they are dis, they are fundamentally destructive, um, especially at scale. Um, the the U.S. and the I was going to say the Soviet Union because that's where my brain sort of all, all <laughs> my bookshelf is over here and like every second title has something to do with the USSR. Um, both of those sides. What was I talking about? Rationality. Rationality. Rational thinking. So much of that is is predicated on this idea that 
you want to live in like, you know, it's, there's a win condition because the win condition exists. And that win condition, if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, it's, oh, yeah. you know, because there's 20 people in a mine shaft and like, you know, because you have 20 and the other side has zero, you've won. Like, but that's as messed up as that is. That's, that's, that isn't necessarily rational thinking. Rational thinking is the idea that your culture overall, your society can, can carry forward. Nuclear weapons are all destructive. Like in, when they're used as the strategy dictates that they will be used, which is all or nothing. And that's, that's basically how war plans, flexible response, um, which is something else that we could talk about. Flexible response doesn't exist. There's always an escalation to move to, it could start with like, you know, a baby nuke on the battlefield and that's going to escalate its way up to the big boys. That's just the way that's always going to work because the military mind takes over and it's, you know, it's basically, we need to, we need to achieve that win condition. As soon as one's been used, that Pandora's box has been opened. It's not a rational weapon. It's all destructive and they, nuclear weapons will, if, if used in a, in a hostile manner, will wipe out the world as, as we know it. The earth will, this is, this is what I keep trying to tell my kids. The earth will survive. It's just that we won't be here with it. Yeah, a great, great name dropping of Dr. Strange. Love that. I'd reckon if nobody's, if people haven't seen that in the chat, it's one of Kubrick's best, I think. And uh, for a satirical comedy, essentially, of that age, it stands up really well, strangely. It could have been written yesterday. In incredibly well. Um, I know Hat Green, um, nuclear bunker outside Manchester, um, for those of you in the UK. Um, they do occasional uh, screenings inside the bunker of uh, of Doctor Strangelove, so I'm gonna name drop Hat Green there. I, I um, live so, in Manchester, and I think I've been on the tour. Yeah, that's check check the website. Occasionally, they they do occasional screenings of uh, Doctor Strangelove, um, which I would perversely enough, I would love to attend. That would be uh, phenomenal. So yeah, the, there are two nuclear bunkers in Manchester that I'm aware of, and one allows tours, and the other one was bought out by a, like a phone company that that uses it to now run like hundreds of miles of cable uh, around. Uh, so yeah, so, somebody did break into it once on seven seven of all days when London was oh. under attack, which is is not the day you want to be breaking into high security facilities. Uh, no, for not sure. really. No. Did you watch Oppenheimer? Did you see it? I did see Oppenheimer. Yeah. What did you think? Uh, I enjoyed it. I'm I'm not I, I, without getting into the, the whole my my movie opinions. I'm not the biggest Christopher Nolan fan. Oof, um, con that's the most controversial thing you've said today. Well, I could say something even more controversial. I could say that Barbie was a better movie. <laughs> Can I talk about Oppenheimer? Like, I don't want to spoil. I know. I think we should it. move on. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. I don't. I don't want to spoil, spoil it. For, it. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. <laughs> I, as, as a movie, I like the stories, and there's two stories that that Nolan's telling, um, and I think that he's trying to tell too much. He's hmm. got two stories running in parallel, and he hasn't managed to. He didn't manage to merge them together well enough to my personal satisfaction. I think there. I would have preferred either a story of making the bomb or a courtroom drama. I have exactly the same. So I'm a massive Nolan fan, but I've been quite lukewarm uh, uh, towards a, a lot of his later efforts. And I, I felt like, because it was building up to this big moment of the Trinity test, you know, the tension was racketed up. It was a beautiful yeah. moment. And then there was another hour of like courtroom drama-esque 
material and it just felt a little bit deflated. I feel like he should have just gone the whole Tarantino route and, and you know, changed the ending and actually had the Trinity test cause the uh, the earth to explode. That would have been quite poignant and interesting. Uh, it just would have been feet being incinerated at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Tarantino. So for sure. So, I mean, moving back to Castro, you said something like six, 600 assassination attempts. Yeah. So that's the, that's, that's the Cuban security services claim. Like by the time that Castro passed away, it'd been 634 separate attempts. Um, the CIA was only really ever has only ever been confirmed as being involved in about seven of them. Um, the, there was a, so Operation Mongoose, which I think was when when Ash had first reached out to me, it was to actually discuss Operation Mongoose, which was the coming going back to Kennedy and uh, and uh, Eisenhower. Um, that was basically it was the, the U.S. plan to to discredit and to remove Castro, um, and that very much started off as with this idea of discrediting him, like you know, of discrediting Castro to the point that the Cuban people wouldn't be in love with him anymore and they would overthrow him and you know the U.S. could move back in and everything would be back to, to happiness and casinos. And we'll come back to casinos in a second because that's really, really important to the story. Um, early plans involved putting uh, like thallium salt in, in Castro's shoes, um, which thallium salts are a depilatory. They'd make his beard fall out. Um, and you know that's his, Castro's beard naturally had magic powers. Um, so as soon as he was, you know, the the, revol the Cuban revolutionaries, like the guys who had like Raul and and Cienfuegos and and um, and Fidel, those guys, they were they were colloquially known as los barbudos, which in Spanish means uh, the bearded ones. Um, and the CIA really latched onto uh, beards um, in terms of trying to like you know it's like take away Castro's allure um, and cigars. Um, they tried to provide botulum. What was it? No, it was to. No, it was botulum-laced um, cigars, um, so that the cigar would uh, either make him very sick or kill him. They tried to arrange to give gift him a scuba, like a wetsuit, a diving suit, with um, that was infested with like um, fungal spores, um, that would give him like an all-over body rash and make him unable to go in public and you know it's like deal with the people because he would be like terribly disfigured. They tried gifting him a, a scuba tank that had tuberculin uh, bacilli uh, to give him tuberculosis and kill him over the long term. Um, as these sort of plans got more and more outlandish, um, they were they had considered um, they considered uh, planting an explosive an explosive seashell um, in an area that he liked to go uh, uh, diving. Um, Castro was a, a huge aquatics guy, like he loved to go um, diving, scuba diving and uh, snorkeling. Um, but that, that was the thought that they were going to put this really attractive shell that was laden with uh, explosives. And then when Castro went to pick it up, it would explode and kill him. Um, that never actually went anywhere. Um, and then Bay of Pigs happens um, in uh, 1961 and fails spectacularly in a really, really big way. And it's huge, huge embarrassing moment for the... Uh, um, for the United States as a whole, but especially for the CIA, because that, that was very much a CIA-backed plot. Um, and that's the part of that, that talk about uh, hubris that I was mentioning earlier, where there's this idea that, that the CIA could do anything. And whatever they, they, they attempt to do, they would obviously get success because they were American and they were the CIA. Um, and then the Bay of Pigs fails spectacularly for a very wide variety of reasons. I'm going to plug the channel. We have a really good episode on the Bay of Pigs. Please go to the Cold War channel. Check that out if you're interested. 
Um, but the CIA basically started changing its tactics after the Bay of Pig, after Bay of Pigs, um, and it involved actual real wet work, um, and that involved like straight up assassination attempts. Um, and one of one of those assassination attempts involved um, trying to uh, smuggle in an actual like like a sniper rifle, um, and have a willing agent in Cuba assassin like straight up like just shoot uh, Castro dead. Um, the gun and the money and everything went on their merry way and never turned up, never to be seen again. That's the recurring theme in this. Um, but then the CIA cottons onto this idea that um, well, like who, what other, what other interests in the world would have uh, be curious to get rid of Castro? And one of the big ones um, that they cottoned onto was the mafia, um, the, the the organized crime in the United States. And so using a, an, a, an ex-FBI agent as a cutout, the CIA reached out and they were put into contact with uh, three separate men. To begin with, it was uh, Handsome Johnny Rosselli, um, who, was a, uh, who was a big Vegas um, mobster. Um, Sam Giancana, who was a Chicago, head of one of the Chicago uh, families. Um, and through them, they were also put into contact with a man named Santos Traficante, um, who was a Spanish-speaking uh, part of the mob, but also very much... Uh, um, uh, involved with uh, with the mafia and with Cuba and the Cuban community um, and the exile community in uh, in the south of Florida. And through this, they started trying to arrange various um, various assassination plots, um, pills, and they were really big into the pills. Um, and they were trying. They had a couple of different uh, plans where they were going to try to sneak pills into a a subversive agent that was working in one of the uh, one of the restaurants that Castro uh, liked to visit, um, and at each stage something happened and it was foiled. Um, each each of these plans that the CIA, that we know of that the CIA was directly involved with some some sort of chance happenstance um, something fell apart and it it didn't come about. Um, and then, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis happens in October of '62. And then, following that, uh, Bobby Kennedy and JFK were both taking were both taking Cuba incredibly personally. Um, Bobby Kennedy, especially. Um, Bobby Kennedy finds out that uh, his brother, the president, is having an affair with a woman named Judith Exner, um, who was a girlfriend of um, Sam Giancana, uh, who's the mobster. Um, and they find this out because um, Judith Exner keeps calling the White House to talk to, to the president. Um, and how that all came about is it's, it, you can't write this stuff. Like this is the truth. The truth can be stranger than fiction. Um, and it all sort of comes about that the attorney general and Bobby Kennedy knew that the CIA was illegally tapping, um, the, placing wiretaps in the United States, which they're not allowed to do. They, um, that's FBI territory. The CIA is only allowed, by law, the CIA is only allowed to operate extraterritorially outside the United States. Um, so there's all these like circuitous paths that, that, that seem to cross and come back and forth um, through the whole thing. But following Bay of Pigs, uh, sorry, not, not Bay of Pigs, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, they really start to pull back a little bit and there's some reconsiderations like, you know, what are they doing? Um, they know that the, a full-scale military invasion is no longer possible because um, they've made that promise to Khrushchev um, in exchange for not blowing up the world. Seems rather important at the time. Um, 
and what we were just talking about. Uh, and this just sort of goes on. And then what your earlier guest was talking about, then JFK is assassinated. And as soon as JFK is assassinated and LBJ takes over as the presidency, JFK had no interest in Cuba whatsoever. He was far more interested in what was happening in Southeast Asia um, and in Vietnam. And basically within, within the space of months, um, LBJ has wrapped up all the Cuba operations um, and squashed them, basically told the CIA no more. Um, and all the CIA stuff is pushed under the rug and it's all sort of covered up and like, you know, they close the files and walk away and they all go get involved in Southeast Asia until the church committee hearings start coming up in uh, 1975. And these are Senate, Senate here, open Senate hearings um, looking into American Security Service oversight um, and overstep, um, looking at all the places where the CIA has overstepped their mandate, done, just gotten way past what they're actually supposed to be doing. And that's when a lot of these assets, like the, the actual proof, um, and there's legislative, not legislated, there's testimonial proof um, and documentary evidence that the CIA was involved in all of these things. Um, it's kind of a wild story. Like it's, it really is a, a bit of a roller coaster. Um, and I'm giving it really short shrift here, and I do apologize. I'm just looking at the time, and I think I've only got a few minutes left in terms of the uh, the time slot. But uh, um, it really is just some really crazy, crazy stories. And some, I mean, you want to talk, I, I work, I have a corporate job, um, and you keep hearing the corporate world loves, like, you know, out-of-the-box thinking, blue-sky thinking. This really was, like, CIA, like, a bunch of, like, you know, ex- like these are spooks, like sitting sitting in a room, coming up with like what's so what are some ideas that we can come up with, and it's exploding seashells. It's you know. I mean, that, back, let's let's talk about the wackiness of it because it, these are supposed to be the greatest minds. You know, the, the clue should be in intelligence, and it's a very it's a, you know the assassination is a very serious business, and some of the, the ideas they come up with would it be out of place in, in say like an Austin Powers movie or some sort of James Bond spoof? Is that wacky? How, how have we got into the situation? I mean, is it just the, the value of hindsight because they were treading new territory or were they, were they really just completely off the chain mentally? The wackiness of a lot of these ideas comes from a, I think a conscious awareness of the agents that were doing the involved in the planning. It was a conscious awareness that the Cuban people weren't particularly interested in removing Castro. They were never going to get a popular revolution to overthrow Castro. Castro had come in and removed a hated dictator. Uh, he was introducing education and healthcare, trying to end racial discrimination. You can have a, there's an endless argument that can happen in terms of what the long-term success of all that is. But in the early 1960s, that's what he was coming in. And that's what he was doing. Um, he, he took a he took a, pop, a population that was had for, like a forty percent illiteracy rate, and I think Cuba Cuban literacy rate in the present is like ninety nine point nine percent. He was a popular guy. It was never going to be a popular revolution. It didn't matter if his beard fell out. It didn't matter if he had like a bunch of fungal spores all over him. Like that that wasn't going to make a difference. Um, well, David, and I think that's that's where a lot of this. Have... And so like the, the wackiness idea is like well. You're not going to get a popular revolution, which is what they had triggered in, tried to trigger somewhat successfully in Guatemala. Um, it was never going to happen in Cuba. So you start thinking like, okay, well, what can we come up with? And that's where you start coming up with exploding cigars. Well, David, you you are an encyclopedia on this topic. And I think I feel I honestly feel like I've been schooled in the most interesting way in, in this conversation. I, I will check out your channel for sure, because I will I will no doubt learn so much. So maybe you could just let people know where they, we can find more of your, your content and output on this issue. 
Yeah, so it's um, thank you very much, Stephen. I, re I really appreciate the effort that the, the opportunity to come on and um, just talk for half an hour. Most most people, including my wife, told me to shut up a long time ago. So, um, so the channel is uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's just the Cold War. Uh, if you type in the Cold War into the uh, the search menu, hopefully that comes up. Um, we've been on releasing videos every Saturday for four and a half years now. I want to say, um, so there's 250 plus uh, videos. Uh, if you do start at the beginning, um, their production quality is maybe a little rough. Some of the the newer stuff is it's a little cleaner, it's a little it's a little prettier. I think I'm a better host now than I certainly was then. But uh, but yeah, um, please check us out. Um, leave co I read all the comments, the especially the bad ones. Um, but uh, oh, it's yeah, it's a hellscape. But uh, but yeah, like please come check us out. Learn a little bit about uh, Cold War history. Um, we take requests. We don't always listen, but we do take requests. So that's uh, that's us. David, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us. I've uh, learned a lot for sure. Pleasure was all mine. I appreciate it. All the take best. Care. Take care.